Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, I'm Sue from the Salves and Mind and Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm recording another episode of our podcast, which is called Psychological. And we are trying with this podcast to have some kind of conversations with psychologists um, about child and adolescent development, well-being, learning, and try and sort of contribute something evidence-based to the sort of discourse around those things at the moment, particularly um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And today's psychological, I'm really delighted to say, is with Laura Crane, who is um, based at the Centre for Research in Autism and Education at the Institute of Education at UCL. And Laura is going to talk to me about a case study in a specialist residential school looking at the development and feasibility of a multimodal talking wall to facilitate the voices of young people with autism and complex needs. So I'm really interested to hear about this research and really happy to welcome you, Laura. Hello. Thank you for inviting me, Sue. Thank you for coming, Laura. This is so fun. Um, so why don't you start by telling me what you think is the kind of headline um, thing that you discovered or that you found out when you were doing this bit of research? Yeah, well, I should start off actually by saying that this is some research that I'm really, really proud of. But actually, it wasn't me that did all of the hard work on this. So all credit goes to the wonderful Nora Richards, who really took the lead on this study. And I met Nora when she was a postgraduate student at UCL's Institute of Education, which is where I work. And at the Institute, lots of our students are practitioners who work in schools, and that was the case for Nora. So at the time that she was doing her dissertation, she worked at Prior's Court School in Thatcham, and that's a residential special school for young people on the autistic spectrum who also have a range of additional learning needs. So they may have additional intellectual disabilities or maybe minimally verbal, for example. And Nora posed a really interesting question as part of her research, which was essentially, how can we know what the young people at Prior's Court want when no one confidently speaks their language? And what we set out to do in this research was to work really collaboratively with staff and with pupils to develop a way to get the voices of the young people heard. So in terms of the kind of key discovery and the key thing that we found, I think it's that with you know, a lot of creativity and collaboration, it is possible to develop a method for that purpose. And it was a method that we called talking walls. And essentially it's a way that pupils can express their views and their emotions in a really meaningful way. But also it was something that fitted in really well with the school context and something that the school found really useful to use and something that the professionals working in there found really useful and valuable too. So it was a real success. This sounds amazing, Laura. So it sounds like it was a real kind of research practice partnership. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about, you know, like setting up that partnership and that link with the school and working in the school a bit. Yeah. So um, 
We at Cray run a network called the Pan London Autism Schools Network. And this was a network that was set up many years ago now, I think over 10 years. And it was a network set up um, by head teachers from autism special schools who wanted to come together because they found they were experiencing similar challenges and wanted to have a forum through which to discuss that. Um, But as they were having their meetings, what they realised was that a lot of the questions that they had needed research to be able to answer them. So a kind of related network was convened, and that's called the Pan London Autism Schools Network Research Group. And I'm currently the chair of that network, and I have a head teacher co-chair. And we meet about once a term. And the goal of the network is to, first of all, help the schools get more research done in their context. So lots of these schools have young people with very complex needs who tend to get excluded from research opportunities. So it's a great way to try to do research that's really relevant and meaningful to them. But it's also a way that the academic researchers can learn more about that school context. So it's a really kind of two-way beneficial partnership. And Prize Court are one of the schools within that network. So we've got a long-standing connection with them. And it was just really lucky, really, that Nora was able to do her dissertation with me at the Institute of Education as well. So really bridging or building off our existing relationship, but also having the opportunity to start something new as well. Mm, Amazing. Um, So why don't you tell us a bit then about how you did the study about the kind of methodology you were using to to develop and kind of evaluate the feasibility of this approach? Yeah, so um, essentially it, it was a kind of very iterative um, process. So it started off with a really quite comprehensive literature review. You know, we don't have to start from scratch with all of our research projects and often we find that we reinvent the wheel quite a lot. So it was a matter of really going to the literature on what's already known about how to elicit voice, particularly, I mean, outside the autism field, but with young people with disabilities more broadly, for example. And by doing this, we were able to identify a real range of different ways that researchers have been able to, and practitioners have been able to elicit voice. So some um, research studies have used things like school preference cards or photographs or post-it notes or kind of wearable cameras and things like this. And what we did was to review all of those and then take them to the staff at Prize Court School and essentially have some focus groups to generate some discussion around those, you know, what they thought about them and particularly what would work in their setting and with their particular profile of pupils. Mm -hmm. So we're able to use that information from the focus group to develop um, what was called the talking wall. So it's a kind of multimodal approach, bringing together lots of good practice that other people had very cleverly come up with. And then we stole it and packaged it up into these talking walls. Um, And it was something that the school were really, really excited about. Um, But there was a little bit of work to kind of implement it. So Nora worked with some of the staff there to develop some training materials for staff 
um, thinking about how they would use the walls with the pupils. So it wasn't the case they just went up and they had to navigate it themselves. They had some quite clear guidance on how to do that, but also some materials for the young people. So some really kind of accessible social stories, mapping out exactly what it was for and how it could be used. Um, and then in terms of the kind of research method, so it was implemented in the school and then we did a range of different um, methods to evaluate it. So we did some observations of the pupils using the wall and these were analysed in the kind of, there was a kind of structured observation of how they were engaging, you know, was it by gesture or gaze and so on, but also some more ethnographic observations. So, you know, Nora was in the school, she knew the context, she knew the pupils, and it was thinking about how they engage and how they interacted with the wall and kind of interpreting that a little bit. And then we also did some um, focus groups with the staff at the end, just reflecting on how they thought it went, what was useful, and really encouragingly, it, it really was a success um, in the sense that, you know, it was just able to be implemented and it was used really effectively, you know. So as a baseline, I think that was a really good way to start. But that was our kind of method and the process that we went through to kind of design, trial, implement and evaluate them. Amazing. So can you just quickly give me a, a bit of a clearer visual picture of what the talking wall looked like and had on it? You know, I'm, I think I'm picturing something from the TV show Funhouse when I was a kid with like <laughs> loads of yeah, I love that. And buttons and dials and things. I don't know. I think that's almost certainly not what it looked like. <laughs> so, um, yeah, can you sort of describe it a bit for us? Yeah, so it was actually a really flexible approach. And the walls were used um, in the classes, but also in the residential setting of the school. And actually in the different places, the different um, staff set them up quite differently. Right. So in some of the classes, for example, there was um, the wall was divided so that each young person had their own section of the wall. In other um, classes or parts of the residential house, they were kind of divided into the things that they liked, things that were okay, and things that they didn't quite like. And essentially, um, they started off very, very blank with nothing on. So it's a bit like when you go into... A school and it's the first day of term and the children haven't yet had any work to go up that's what they start they really a blank slate just with some information about how to use them and maybe kind of partitioned off and then as the kind of term developed you would see more and more things going onto the walls so it could be that the young people had gone bowling and they had a ticket with the, or a scorecard from the bowling alley and that could go on the wall it could be that they did an activity that they really liked and someone could um take a polaroid picture of it for example and then that would go up on the wall so it became kind of like a scrapbook and actually one of the things um that the school have been working on since is whether you know maybe at the end of term or after a certain period that information could be transferred from the wall into a scrapbook that the young person can keep and it can kind of keep a record of 
who they are and what they like for a kind of longer period as well. But they are very, very flexible and very adaptable, which is a really nice thing about them. Mm, mm, that's lovely. Um, and so, so you talked about some of the methods there, um, which are methods I've kind of used a bit as well. But I think one of the things, I don't know if you've run into this before, but one of the conversations that you can sometimes have when you're doing this kind of research embedded in practice and using kind of ethnographic and observational measures and so on is that it's not sort of objective enough you know it's not scientific enough whatever scientific means um and uh and so I just wondered what your sort of feelings are about that idea of objectivity especially when you're working with a population who require um people to put the effort in to 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 you know to develop their understanding right of that population so yeah what do you think yeah I think I mean that's a really really brilliant question um definitely I think early on um in my research career I was very pro objectivity high level of experimental control and rigor and I still think you know we have to strive for high standards in autism research I think that's you know crucially important but similarly I think you know we do have this big problem in research this kind of translational gap between research and practice and so often we see for example interventions that have been developed and they have undergone really rigorous evaluation and they're implemented with a really high level of control and they seem to work, so to speak. And then when you go to implement them in the community, all of a sudden it breaks down because we realise that actually we didn't really know enough about the context. It wasn't designed for the context in which it's going to be implemented in. And then we have a huge problem because there's been so much investment in research and then it doesn't really make the difference that we're striving for. So kind of observing that and reflecting on that a lot, I've moved much more towards a kind of collaborative and participatory approach in my work. And I think it is, and I think the challenge is, how do we merge that rigour um, and objectivity with the kind of practical setting? And I think, you know, in this context in particular, I think it would have been very, very difficult for me to kind of parachute in with my lack of knowledge of the pupils and lack of understanding of the context and just say, right, I see you've got this problem. Let me design something for you and trial it without really understanding their context and working collaboratively with them. I just think that would have completely failed and I would have done them a disservice. And actually, I think that through this process of working collaboratively, we've both benefited quite a lot because I was pushing for a very kind of careful, controlled, systematic process of work, you know, engaging with the existing literature, you know, working to decide what we can develop and really trying to map that out in a very clear and explicit way thinking carefully about how we can have some objective measures with these more subjective ones and bring them together. And also making sure that our write-up was very transparent in terms of the roles and particularly in terms of Nora's role as kind of insider, practitioner, researcher, 
and being very upfront about her kind of positionality and her role within the school and how that could have influenced the way that we conducted the study and the way that we interpreted it. So I think it is a challenge, but I think there's some steps that we can take to try to bring those two things together and still have a really high quality piece of research, but something that also makes a really important difference to practice. So that's what my goal is. Hopefully we succeeded. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and I think that word transparency is so important there because a lot of what we put in place to control other kinds of studies, you know, like randomized controlled trials or experimental studies are designed to essentially avoid ever requiring transparency, right? Because, because the study is so tightly controlled, it doesn't matter who, theoretically at least, it doesn't matter who administered it, who collected the data, you know, all those sorts of things, because it's supposed to be this kind of well, this laboratory environment, right? We call them labs. Um, and and sometimes I think sort of, who are we kidding, right? We do influence our data, even when we're supposedly in a controlled setting. And in lots of ways, when you go out into the world, into the community, and you don't have that control, and instead you have to replace it with an honest appraisal of what you did and what biases you potentially brought to it, I think that's often a higher standard of of scientific rigor than than the sort of you know slightly um uh what's the word idealized control that we think we have in the lab right yeah. um, <laughs> um well, you know great minds laura um so so normally I ask about the implications for practice, but actually I suppose in this case, I'm quite interested about the implications for research. Do you think that things like the talking wall could be used to help people who are often, you know, we kind of struggle to include in research, be effective research participants, both, both participants in the sense of, you know, um, like contributing data to the study, but also in terms of helping to kind of lead and make decisions around a study. Do you think there's potential for that kind of application? I think it's really tricky. Um, I was reflecting a lot on the fact that, you know, I think it's the statistics about 96% of autism research um, doesn't include autistic people with intellectual disability. And we know that that group are really excluded. And I think one of the findings from that piece of research was that researchers just really don't know how to work effectively with that group. And certainly in my research, um, when I started out, it was exclusively with autistic people who were verbally and cognitively able. And I mean, I should emphasize as well, I, I don't think we should kind of overlook that group. You know, in a lot of my research, I've seen that they're hugely disadvantaged when it comes to things like access to services, access to support. We know that mental health is very, very poor. But something I am really keen to do more of is to include this kind of group with quite complex needs in research. Um, I still feel, even though I've done research in this area, I'm not overly confident in doing it. 
And I think that in terms of going forward, it really is about getting people with their expertise. And this is why I think this study works so well, because there was someone who really knew the context um, much more. And I think that was super useful. Um, but I do think, I, I do hope that it will kind of stimulate more research with this group and it might give people a kind of framework of how, even if you don't have very much knowledge or experience of working with this group, that through working collaboratively, you know, there is a way that you can apply your ideas and your work to this group who often don't get studied. So I, I think... For me, that would be the kind of implication for practice. You know, it is going to be very, very, sorry, implication for research rather. It will be really hard and you might need support, but, you know, it's worth the effort because this group really are underrepresented in research. Um, I hope that this does have lots of impact on practice as well, though, because I think a lot of the time when you do a piece of research, that is based within a kind of practical context, it still doesn't have very much impact because you write it up in an academic journal and then not that many people read it outside of academia. So we did try and succeeded. We made it open access so people can read it. And we tried very hard to write it in a style that's hopefully quite accessible, even if you're not a psychologist or academic. But the other thing that we did, which I thought was quite important, was that all of the materials that were developed, so the um, training materials for the staff and the social stories for the young people, they're all included in the academic paper as supplementary materials. So any school who's interested in this idea and wants to implement it, not only can they read about the research, but they can go and access all of the materials that were developed for free. And that hopefully means that they can set up a talking wall in their school. And if they want, they can start thinking about how they might evaluate it and how they might develop it. So I'm really hoping that this paper might have some strong impact for both research and even more for practice outside of prize court too. That's amazing, Laura. And I think such a great... Um inspirational model for people listening because actually I think this is a really undervalued part of research which is that it's not just necessarily about the thing that you discover in that particular study it's about the example that you set and the and the new ground that you break that then people can build on you know kind of following in your footsteps and so that's that's a wonderful contribution to make. You know, people can use this as a, a template for work that they're doing and practitioners can use it to implement it. But, you know, new researchers coming through can be inspired by that model and think, ah, oh, I could do research like that, you know. Um, this has been marvellous. I always have a billion more questions that I could ask, but I have to keep an eye on time because this is supposed to be a bite-sized podcast. Sometimes I think the bites get really big. Um, but I will ask you before we finish whether you have any thoughts based on your experience and your general brilliance for early career researchers or PhD students who might be listening, because that's something we often do at the end of the episodes. Sure. I don't know about brilliance. I feel like I'm often muddling through. Um, but I think for me, the kind of moral of this whole story is all about collaboration 
and the importance of working together. And I think it goes beyond just the kind of specific context I've talked about today in terms of the kind of academic school partnership, but kind of more broadly. Um, I just think there's kind of, there's so much to be gained by working with people rather than working against people. And I think in my career, there've been quite a lot of times where, you know, someone's been working in a really kind of similar topic or in a similar area. And, you know, it could be really quite easy to be like super competitive and really territorial about it. But I think actually, you know, you'll have more fun and also achieve much more if you just work together. Um, So I think my top tip, in terms of people kind of starting their research careers is just to be nice to people and to work together with people because not only is it better for science but I think you'll have more fun in the process too. That is great and yeah I think the value of being nice and having fun is something we don't put enough emphasis on but you know that's the reason why I do my job right I get to work with tons of really fascinating marvelous people I wouldn't be sticking around in it otherwise I think um I'd go and do something better paid where I don't have to claim my biscuit expenses (laughs) (laughs) sorry everyone this is a I that's very bad of me to introduce private jokes into the podcast but anyway if you check Laura's Twitter feed you'll find out what I'm talking about um so yeah, thank you so much. Ago, but it's still something I'm contending with, university expenses. <laughs> university expenses are, we could do a whole, I mean, that would not be a bite-sized episode, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Laura, for your time. Um, anyone listening, you will be able to find out more about this work as well as linking to that open access paper and all the supplementary materials that Laura mentioned. All those links will be in the podcast description in your app, wherever you listen to the podcast, and also on our Buzzsprout page where you can search for psychological. And um, that's it for today. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining me. Thank you, Sue, for inviting me. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly.